Father, I just thank you that your word is so powerful, and I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for bringing us all together. I just pray that uh, what we hear from your word is changing, that it changes us, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let me take my mask off. That's probably better. Okay, guys, I'm just going to quickly read. You know what? Actually, we don't have time to read all these verses. Um, but, guys, one thing that we're doing uh, is, so you'll notice on Sundays, we take a passage and we we delve into it through a little Bible study that we have. So you'll be in small groups on Sundays. But then on Fridays, what we do is we take that same passage that was taught the previous week, Sunday, and instead of going through it in, de- in depth, I just pick out a few things and I kind of just try and make it relevant for your life. It's the same that Jared's going to do that. And Paul, when he teaches, that's the plan. All right. So, um, so if you're listening now to this, you're not going to get the best out of this passage that you can. Uh, it's best that you come on Sundays and Fridays. And let me tell you, actually, the studies that we have on Exodus, um, like, I don't know if you guys, some of you guys will remember this last year if you were joining us on Zoom. Uh, I think, I, I think I can speak for everybody and I say that the book that we probably learned the best last year was when we did Esther. Because everybody, and I, and I think this study is going to be the same because, uh, Royden Frost wrote the study and he's just a genius. And, uh, and, and the study is really good. Um, so, so and I think the mad leaders, we did Exodus 2 on Tuesday, which we're going to teach on Sunday. And, we were just like, afterwards, we were all worshiping Jesus. It was such an awesome passage. Um, so we're going to do Exodus chapter 1. I'm just going to do a brief overview of, of what it's about. Um, so basically what happens in Exodus chapter 1 is God's people are enslaved to the Egyptians. It's horrific. Uh, many South Africans can actually probably uh, testify to how the Israelites would have felt in this. Um, because many South Africans were oppressed during apartheid. The Egyptians are basically like the oppressors of apartheid. They're oppressive rulers. Um, but in chapter 1, they want to take it a step further to what they were doing previously, which is just enslaving people. They, they want to go off and kill the, the, the male-born children of the Israelite people. So take that picture that you have of how horrific apartheid is, slap it onto this, and put within that the, this picture of these Egyptian people wanting to kill the male sons. And they're doing that because they're scared, the Israelite people. They're scared that the Israelite people are going to grow too much and take over, beat the Egyptians at their game, and become the rulers and so, the Pharaoh at the time says, you know what, let's, let's cut, this in the, cut this out now, let's deal with this now. And so he decides to commit genocide. But what is really, what is really helpful is, is how God acts in the story. But before we get there, there were some things we had to remember from Genesis uh, that we saw in the study, which was, one, is Genesis 3 told us that Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, um, that a result of that would, is that there would be enmity between the seed of Eve and Satan. So basically, the children of Eve and Satan would always have, there'd always be evil, there'd always be clashes, there'd always be battles. You'd always feel the tension between God's, between 
the people of God and Satan. And it's a tension we still feel to this day. We, we, we know that there's evil in the world and there's a tension, a desire for us to do good, but there's also the tension of evil. But we also saw in Genesis um, that despite this tension and this evil, that God would still look after his people. And multiple times in Genesis we saw that there was this promise to God's people that they would be blessed and they would be blessed by God giving them lots of descendants, lots of children, and lots of generations. He would bless them by multiplying them. And then the other blessing that we saw in Genesis is that he would one day give them a land for their own blessing. So you've got two blessings being multiplied. There was other blessings, but these two are the key, they're the key focuses, being multiplying his people and given a land. Now, when you get to our story, you see that Israel is properly experiencing that battle between good and evil. There are God's people, and they are at the hands of the enemy, which is the Egyptians, and more specifically, they're under the hands of this really powerful guy called Pharaoh. However, while they're in the battle, the crazy thing is God still blesses them. Because he gives them the descendants that he said he would in Genesis. So when you read through chapter 1, you keep seeing this word come up over and over again, that God, God's people multiplied and multiplied, despite all of Pharaoh's efforts to try and cull the people, which means cut them off from growing, they still multiplied. Um, and in fact, I still find it quite funny that um, if you go in verse 19, Pharaoh says, to the, so Pharaoh says to the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, he says, you guys have got to go and uh, when a baby is being born from the Israelites, you've got to basically... As the, 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 when you're delivering the baby, you've got to kill it there and then. But look, listen, look what happens in verse 19. Um, the, this is the excuse of the midwives for why little boys aren't actually dying. It says, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So it's, it's quite a funny picture. Like, they're like, we tried, but the women are so strong that this baby just comes. We can't do anything about it. So you can see that in this, God is actually working. God is actually still multiplying. He's still blessing his people in the midst of suffering. And for most of us in our culture, that is a crazy thought. Because here's what we do in our culture. It, we think that when we're suffering, it cannot be that God is, is blessing us. We tend to separate the two. We cannot be blessed in the midst of suffering. We tend to think that if we're suffering, in fact, God is not blessing us. He's punishing us. Or we're being cursed. Well, God may still be punishing you, but that doesn't mean that he can't bless you. It's a weird thought, isn't it? But if you think about it, quite often in the Bible, you see that blessing actually happens in trial. So in James chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this. I've got it printed out in my notes. It says, Count it all joy, my friends, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. In other words, you can rejoice in your trials because it strengthens your faith. And you and I know this. When we struggle as Christians, that's when we actually cling to God the most, isn't it? 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 6 says it this way. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have tr- you have to, you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. So here, he's not saying suffering is good, but he's saying that your faith is refined, like gold is refined when it's under pressure, except gold eventually perishes, but your faith doesn't. So these are just two incidences where you can see God actually blesses you in the midst of your trials. Now, I want to say a few things about this, um, about this whole thing of us being in the battle and still being blessed by God through that, is there's a couple of things. Sometimes I think we don't see the battle around us, but it's there. I might not see it, but it's all around. Genesis 6 verse 4 says this, that evil is in the heart of every person, and you can see that all around. Just look at your parents, especially when they're fighting. You can see the evil come out of the hearts of people. We see it in the breakdowns of our relationships at school. We see it in the unfairness of the certain things that happen at school. Amen? You, you know that some people can just be unfair. But you also know that some people can... You can also see the evil in some people in the way that they respond to that unfairness, right? <laughs> We're surrounded by it. When you scroll through Facebook and you see that this person is angry at that person... When you're scrolling through Instagram and you see that that celebrity is complaining about that person. There are movements on social media that spring out all the time because of injustice. We're surrounded by evil. You and I are actually in the battle. Sometimes we're the recipients of the battle. Other times we're just watching it or we're just in the midst of it. And we're experiencing it all around it. But make no mistake, we're part of the battle. And the good thing is we know that God is blessing his people. And you can worship God in that because this passage is telling us this. And I'd love to say that you will see it straight away. You'll see, when, that you'll see just how God is blessing you in those times, but we don't often see it. But there is something that I've learned. And that is sometimes when you... When you look over your life, say you look over the past five or ten years, you can see that there's good times and there's trials. And you might not be able to say, God specifically grew me like this in that area, or God specifically grew me like this in that area. You might not be able to do that, but what you can do is you can look and you can say, I've grown. I don't know how, but I've grown. And I know from the Bible, because this passage tells me God grows me in trials. Sorry, not this passage, but James and 1 Peter. And you can say, I was blessed in my trial. I might not have seen it, but I've been blessed. A suggestion, though, when you are going through trials, is do this, if you can. Because sometimes trials can be really hectic. Just take a step back and think about your trials and, th- and try to see perhaps the areas where God is blessing you. Perhaps you see that person who is a friend that's been by your side the entire trial and you just haven't seen them that's that's god blessing you with a friend who's walking through you with you through the fire perhaps you look back on your trial and, and your trial's been a couple of days but you just find that you you haven't you just your relationship with god has never been stronger because you've you've realized you've had to cling to god that for me has been the biggest thing to the trials that i've been going through lately I've re- God has been teaching me that I am not the boss of my life, that he is, and I need to cling to him to be in control. 
And I'm so thankful that I learned that. I would not have learned that had I not gone through the fire. So the second thing I want to say is that we see it in our culture. We're not just in the fight through the things that we see around us, but we're in the fight in our own culture. Because as our culture steps more and more away from a good God, the more they step into something else, isn't it? If you think about it, Jesus says, uh, when he's talking to the, the rich young ruler, he says, only God is good. And so if, if a culture steps away from a good God, what are they turning to? Things that are evil, things that are not of God. And because our culture is doing this, you and I are going to be ostracized. We're going to be hated and we're going to be looked down upon. It might not be happening now, but it will happen. I, I was watching, a while ago, I was watching this trailer once of, of a movie about a teenage boy who basically comes out of the closet. He's gay. I can't remember the movie, but I remember the trailer. It was a true life story that showed the abuse that this kid got for being gay. He was mocked, he was beaten, and he was ostracized for being gay. And at the end of the trailer, the last scene is this kid is alone in a room. And it's proving a point that he feels alone. And the trailer stuck in my mind. But what also stuck in my mind was one of my friends who was a pastor in the UK told me about how when he would go to one of the schools to meet up with some of the Christians to pray, they had stuff thrown at them. They were mocked. And those Christians were feeling ostracized. And I just thought to myself, how interesting, hey? A few years ago, people were ostracized for being a gay and accepted for being Christian. And now they're ostracized for being Christian and accepted for being gay. Now, in both cases, people were wrong. People were wrong to ostracize that gay guy. And they were also wrong to ostracize the Christian. It just actually shows you how society has actually moved further away from a loving and caring God. You know, and we tend to think we're more tolerant, right? But in the beginning, the gay guy was oppressed. We haven't become more tolerant. We've just simply switched out what we're oppressing. And it's going to get worse for us as Christians. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity has now been classified as a, what did they call it? An oppressive religion. Uh, which basically means that a lot of places are going to stop accepting Christians. A lot of countries that we travel to are going to say, no, you can't be here on mission trips. And here you are actually trying to share the love of Christ. And what's happening is you're rather being kicked out by the, at the door before you even get in. You're going to feel it. And the last thing that we feel in the battle is there's a war that's within us. This is the last point I want to make, is that, so this is um, from, from James chapter 4, and it says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do, not ha- you do not have because you do not ask, and you, uh, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the passage is basically saying this, that there are passions within you, good and evil passions, and they're fighting within you. And the result of that battle often comes out of, out of you and affects the world around you. For example, he says in verse 2, you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. So, so clearly the people James was talking to back then were having battles inside of them. Uh, they desired to have something that they couldn't. And the battle was either to have it or to not, to do the right thing or to not. And eventually the desire won to have it. And so they would go to the extent of killing to get it. So the war is inside of them and it's a battle and it spills over into to something that happens in reality. And you and I, we have this war inside of us as well. The war to either do the right thing or not, but often we choose to do the wrong thing. You can see it when, when you've just been told something juicy about a friend and you're just dying to tell it to somebody else, Right? You know the feeling? You know you shouldn't, but you do. And the result is, you don't murder someone, but you murder their reputation. And boys, and maybe some of girls as well, but you may feel this when you have uncapped internet and you are alone. The desire to look at pornography overwhelms, and the next thing, you are looking at it, and you've just objectified women. So my, my time is up, but the last thing I want to say is that if, you are exper- if you're not experiencing this war in any form, if you don't feel the tension either inside of you or in the world around you, then perhaps you're not as close to the good God as you should be. In other words, you don't, you don't think there's much evil around you because you don't know it's evil. But if you spent more time in God's word, you'd learn more about what evil is and what it isn't. You don't see what's wrong with your culture because you are steeped in your culture. But perhaps if you were steeped in God's word, your eyes would be opened. You don't have a tension inside of you because there is no tension. You're not even trying to follow God. You're happily living in a world and you think there's nothing wrong. You're the kind of person who perhaps says you are a Christian, but in your mind you sometimes think, what is, what is really the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? But if you're honest with yourself, you don't spend a lot of time getting to know God. Yeah, you you might actually pray to him a lot. But your prayers are all about you. Because you actually don't desire to get to know God. When You see, when when God's word becomes a thing that that consumes your life, I'm not saying it's like you do it every second. But when you have this desire and this joy that comes from God, it changes you. It, becomes, it makes you better, but it opens your eyes to see the evil in, in yourself and in the world around you. And it makes you want to be better. Suddenly you feel you're in the tension. You suddenly don't want to do the things that others are doing because you know it's wrong. And, and, and let me tell you that when that's happening, you're in the war. You're in the battle. I find it amazing, this is my last paragraph, <laughs> I find it amazing how many people don't feel the tension when they're going out with their friends. And it's because they'll head to a party and they, they will drink like their friends, swear like their friends, dress like their friends, and maybe even try hook up like their friends do. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't dress nicely or that you shouldn't even drink. I'm okay with people drinking. But why don't we look different when we're hanging out with our friends? Why don't we? 
It's because we go filtered into being exactly like them. And let me say this to you. You might, you might look like the nerd or the loser if you don't do those things, but let me tell you what will happen is that your friends will come to you in times of crisis because while you're, while you're not doing those things, you're also not the one who's gossiping. You're also not the one who's speaking behind your friends' backs. You're also the one who's honest and truthful and trustworthy. So right in the moment when you're having that good time, people are like, oh, we don't want to hang out with you because, I don't know, they might not do that. I found my friends didn't really do that. But if they do do that, and you might get that, that's part of being in the war. But let me tell you, you will always be the one who's more trustworthy if you are sticking to being godly in the midst of the war. I think I've said enough. So let me... Let me pray for us. Lord, we are, we are in the war. We know this. I think we often feel like we're, we feel perhaps we're slaves to the culture we're in. I've heard many people chatting about things saying that they, they're afraid to speak up as Christians because they're afraid of being ostracized or being downtrodden. They're afraid their opinions will not matter and, and therefore might be accepted. Um, Lord, we're in the war. Help us to stand out as Christians. Help us to be lights in the world. Help us to shine your truth so brightly that when people see it, they want to trust in you because they know that we're not going to change who we are. Praise in your name. Amen.